All right, here we go. Uh, another radio-friendly unit shifters podcast. I think we're up to uh, episode six here, and we welcome this week the uh, one and only promo man working uh, for BMG these days, and we'll talk to him about his uh, amazing journey through the uh, the industry in all its various forms. Nick Attaway, thanks for having me out. This is we're taking the show on the road this week here. I'm at your uh, your house. This is awesome. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming <laughs> over. <laughs> We're surrounded by uh, awesome promotional uh, material. We got some signed guitars. Who are the four guitars here? Who are these? Uh, uh, this is a Perfect Circle, Blink One Eight Two, Godsmack, and uh, and Nickelback. And don't laugh. <laughs> signed guitars. That's because, awesome. Because Nickelback, some of the nicest guys I've ever worked with. I'm, you would think that they would be ruined alcoholic drug addicts for being the most hated band in the world, but they have laughed themselves to the bank. That's right. And they are loving life more than anyone I know. That's awesome. I want definitely want to ask you about them a little later. Uh, we'll talk about their new cover of uh, Charlie Daniels' band song <laughs> that's come out recently. And then you got, you know, more promotional material to talk about. So Glorious Sons, uh, Blink-182, Dido, some of your many success stories. Yeah, Pink, Jam, you know, uh, New Radicals. But even some that aren't success stories that I love. Like, I love that plaque of Methods of Mayhem. Yeah. Not the greatest album in the world. It says that it went gold, but I'm sure shit it didn't sell more than 100,000 copies. So there was some sort of, like, music industry hooky-doo there to give uh, the person at the label who signed them, uh, you know, uh, a reason not to look bad. So it, it reminds me of uh, the smoke and mirrors of, of the past. Yeah. Which, there is no such thing as smoke and mirrors in the music business nowadays. It's all about transparency. Yeah, because it was back in the 90s. I, I was working at a record store in Columbia, Missouri, uh, part-time because my, you know, my full-time job at uh, KBXR didn't pay me enough. So I was still, I was at Streetside Records and... Back then, I think was about when it started transforming, but you really did have, you would have a record that would hit number one based on how many it shipped, right? Instead of how many it was actually selling. Well, it's supposed to be how many were scanned. Like I know, okay. I know that uh, the person who signed Methods of Mayhem really wanted to have it to be successful. So I think they shipped like a million records and like almost 900,000 of them were returned back. Which cost a massive amount of money, but for some reason that plaque says that it's an RIAA confirmed gold of 500000 but there's no way. There's, there was something that went down. Like, I know there was all these tricks on the retail side. Like, yeah. I know that back in the day, you know, a label person would come in, right, with a box of CDs of 30, knowing that you were an independent-weighted store where every CD sold. Uh, equaled like 15 on sound scan so they would give you the box all you had to do is scan each one and there's like 10 other ways to, that they were able to manipulate the system uh -huh. and like the the worst offenders were the rap artists right because if you had two major rappers coming out with a record on the same week uh -huh. that being in second place 
is a massive embarrassment. Right. So they would pull out every fucking <laughs> trick of the trade possible to beat out to the competition to the point that at the end of the day, it didn't matter how many they sold over the course of the next year, they'd probably still be in debt from all the bullshit <laughs> games they played. Well, and that's the thing now, you've got this kind of, um, you know, an artist can sell X amount, but then the streaming numbers, you have to account for the stream somehow. So they've got 10,000 streams to equal like one sold or something like that. I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, you know, it's it's like some weird ass formula. I'm not sure how it goes because you have the single sales and the album sales and the streams. If a single downloads a certain amount of times, then it's considered an album sale. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite sure how it works i just found out that the godsmack album that i have recently worked when legends rise to rock radio yeah. is now officially gold nice uh and the first single is officially platinum and this is amazing because in today's world yeah. rock bands especially heritage rock bands just don't do that well but i know in terms of album streams we have uh you know we have over 400 million album streams which is insane. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I love it because I got four number one records. It's mm -hmm. the first time in my career I got four number ones off the same album. Wow. You know, it means a lot because it's, it's more successful than many of his past several records. And a lot of people think that if a band has been around for 20 years, that their best days are behind them and that they've peaked and they're just only going to go down. And that's not true. You know, because we had four number ones off of this album... Godsmack's touring numbers were massive mm -hmm. uh, and did way better than the tour that happened a few years before. Why? Mm. Because they had hits. Mm. And to this day, you know, uh, having hits on the radio uh, really translate to ticket sales. Blink-182, perfect example with the album California, was the first time the band ever had two number one hits off of that album. And that tour was an amphitheater tour, which pretty much every single night sold out. Yeah, uh, it oversold because I think they were adding extra tickets for the lawn, and that's because we had two massive hits, and the follow-up album, which is not on BMG, it's on Columbia, did not have big hits on the record, and uh, as a result, the tour didn't sell as well as as the tour that I had, and it's all because of radio, and I saw that, you know, and I saw that with Godsmack, hmm. which uh, which was awesome. And you also think that these older bands are just catering to, you know, their old base and just trying to cash in. But every show that I went to, the lead singer, Sully Erna of Godsmack, would ask the audience how many people here are seeing Godsmack for the first time. And I swear to God, it seemed like 20% of the house would raise their hand and they were all under the age of 25. Yeah, that's amazing. Right? Well, when Pearl Jam has gotten to that point where you've got almost like three generations of fans in the stands at their arena shows, you know? Yeah. I definitely want to ask you about Blink-182 and working with them pretty closely. So you and I met probably at some point during the KBXR years. I want to say at Bonnaroo is probably where we first uh, ran into each other because I was going there... I think I did two Bonnaroo's before I moved to Charlottesville. So talk about your experience working kind of, we, we've talked with Kiefer and, uh, and with Jacqueline a little bit about some of that ambiance of the uh, backstage <laughs> Bonnaroo experience. And you've got, by the way, you've got this awesome new table that you, uh, 
You've got a Godsmack All Access. You got a Dave Matthews Band VIP. You got all these Bonnaroo uh, access passes that you've turned into a uh, a table with a, a glass, you know, see through top on it, and it, it's it beats the heck out of having all of these things just buried in a in a box upstairs, right? Yeah, because you know when you do what we do, the great thing about working in our industry is that we never get to grow up. I mean. The, we we live in like a Peter Pan world. You know, I'm 50 years old and I look at people that I know that I went to high school with and they look like they could be my fucking parents. <laughs> so as much as we abuse our body, uh, you know, by staying up to the wee hours of the morning and drinking copious amounts of alcohol and whatever substances floats your boat, um, we, uh, you know, we managed to, to stay young. And uh, looking good, you know, and what's bad for the body is good for the mind is what I always say. <laughs> and um, it's it's great because it's an amazing industry to work in. It's probably not as cool or fun as it was back in the 60s, 70s and 80s yeah. and early 90s. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's sure shit better than working at a bank. Yeah. <laughs> And we get to, yeah, you know, Bonnaroo was my summer camp, you know. Uh, I think I went to like 10 or 11 Bonnaroos before Live Nation took over. And um, to be able to have the ultimate backstage access, go everywhere I want to go, see all these amazing bands, you know, have the air-conditioned tour buses and, uh, and, you know, the open bar 24-7 you get that level of comfort that being a spoiled music industry person has. Also, you know, we're old, right? So we're never going to sleep in a fucking tent with the <laughs> with the, the general population, for That's God's right. sake. I mean, I don't know if, you know... Anyone I did that once or twice with those, those years that we were going, and it, that was definitely a different experience. Oh, my God, it's brutal. Like, one time I took a golf cart and drove through the uh, campsites of Bonnaroo. <laughs> it seemed to go on for, like, miles. Yes. And, you know, it, it reminded me of what, like, Haiti was like after the earthquake, except everyone was white. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they all yeah. look like zombies too. <laughs> it's well now that's funny, isn't it? How it's transformed into that is the area, the growth area of even especially Bonnaroo maybe, because they've had artist curation now in these past couple of years of an actual you know music tent within the general camping tent, and so they've been able to kind of. You know, the Cage the Elephant guy did one and Haley from Paramore did one. And to me, they're 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 taking that party out into the, the general area a little bit, which is awesome. But yeah, they, they definitely had to do something, I think, when Live Nation took it over. And then the, the one really bad year I was there and it was about literally half of the usual attendance. And then... Is that when Dead & Company played and they realized they can't sell tickets to a music festival in the in the middle of a cow fill? To <laughs> no, like I think it was Pearl Jam's year, Burns. actually. <laughs> really? Yeah, Pearl- old people don't want to camp. <laughs> you had Pearl Jam, LCD Sound System, and I think maybe Fish. No, no, it was... Because Fish would have brought more people. But anyway, it was... Yeah, even the Fish fans want to be in hotel rooms. <laughs> You know, old people, when I say old people, I'm saying basically anyone over the age of 40 aren't going to fucking camp. <laughs> yeah. That's a young man's game. 
You know, going to bed at three in the morning and waking up in a 120 degree tent at eight in the morning. No, thanks, man. Well, they definitely stepped up their game the following year with the, uh, the restroom facilities were much nicer for, for everybody. And, uh, yeah, it sounds, it seems like they've got their mojo back. And then we've had, you know, COVID of course this year has, has canceled pretty much everything. So how have you been weathering the, the storm here? You, you're basically kind of hunkered down working from home cause you're, you're on the road a lot during the course of a normal year, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm on the road as much as I want to be, you know, not too much where it's a burden on my family, uh, but just enough to be, uh, to keep my wife happy because the the toughest part about, I guess, uh, COVID is being home all the time. You know, I work out of the house and I'm loud. Promo guys are loud. So uh, I know it's driving my wife nuts. But, um, and I miss the road, you know, I miss traveling. I miss seeing friends that I've made over the past 20 years in radio, going out to dinner and having a great time and then going to shows and then hanging out afterwards on the tour bus with the bands who many of which, uh, have become dear friends of mine. And, um, I, you know, I miss that terribly. I want to talk to you about like a band like Gloria Sons, which you've been a part of, you know, pretty much from the beginning and, you know, taking a young band through the various stages of, of success. And then coming on to a project like Blink-182, where those guys have been established for many years and you're, you know, they've had a, you know, a lineup transformation, but at the same time, you know, you kind of jump into the, the promotion team at a stage where, like you said, they're selling out stadiums and and they're able to play these these huge places so first of all i want to have you kind of for the for the average person take us through maybe the chain of command or like the different trees in the because you're pretty high up on the chain of bmg at this point right in terms of the promotion people yeah well up until a few months ago i was the promotion people (laughs) You know, I was like, I know there aren't aren't many left, really, for most in the major labels, and yeah, you know. I mean, we're BMG. Some people would think we're a major label, where we're not. We're an independent label. We have far less employees than the majors do. Uh, up until a few months ago, uh, I was uh, in charge of all the rock department of BMG, Rock Alternative, AAA, by myself. I would hire out a lot of subcontracting promotion people uh, to help me with each project, which is actually uh, a great way to operate because if you have a large staff, that large staff may be only in tune to be able to handle like a specific type of job and not be suited for every single type of record. But when you don't have to pay a big staff, you have the luxury of hiring individuals that are best suited for each project. On one record, this guy would be really great. On another record, this guy would be really great. And I could really build a custom team. Whereas if I did have a big staff, I wouldn't be able to do that. It may not be able to get as good of results. So, you know, that's how that is. But then now I just hired uh, a guy named Amit Kumar. He's based in Atlanta. He's my right-hand guy. And uh, awesome. Love him. And it's nice to have someone that I can talk with every day to uh, go through our plans and and strategize and uh and it it just helps keep me motivated well in a band like godsmack too i'm a little surprised to see to hear you say not anything against the band necessarily the classic rock format 
Yeah. Even to get him to play the 90s stuff, the grunge stuff is, is uh, well, here, here, here's <laughs> tough the, sometimes. Well, you know, here's the deal. You said hard rock. Well, that's not the case anymore, mm-hmm. right? The Glorious Sons, I don't consider hard rock. Mm-hmm. I consider themselves, you know, uh, a rock band with a classic sensibility mm-hmm. with a little bit of an alternative nuance mm-hmm. to it. But you have to look at what has happened to alternative radio to understand what is happening at active rock radio. Mm -hmm. You know, alternative radio has gotten so poppy, Mm -hmm. so synth driven uh, that anything that even has a remote sound of a guitar gets shunned by most alternative stations. Yeah, that's wild. So if a song actually has a guitar in it, it can get played by active rock radio mm-hmm. because they can own it. Mm-hmm. They can champion it, which is great for them because they're like, oh, great. You know, Alternative just wants to play a bunch of 20-year-olds in Meggings playing keyboards, you know, and uh, they're going to ignore all these bands with guitars. And now we can, we can reinvent ourselves mm-hmm. and we can widen our audience. You know, we can stop playing the knuckle-dragging cookie monster rock of the past and actually evolve playing a lot of these bands alternatives should be playing uh mm-hmm. but you know adopt them as our own mm-hmm. you know they should be doing it more than they are but with that being said you know in um 2019 the glorious sons song sos sawed off shotgun was the number one most played song at active rock radio wow i mean think about it like a brand new band out of fucking Canada right. that no one ever heard of ended up being the most played song at Active Rock for 2019. And what's amazing about that is that on January 1st of 2019, or in the first week of January, when the industry started again after the holidays, the Glorious Sons started 2019 at number one. So we literally had like, you know, six months of airplay before that. Wow. And then all that airplay after that still made them the most played song of the year. Mm -hmm. So I got a hand attack of rock radio and it was a huge monster smash. And if you pull up media base now, you'll see that it's still getting a ridiculous amount of airplay. Like I'm looking at iHeart stations and Cumulus stations that are still playing it and what would be power rotation Mm -hmm. if it was not a recurrent. And it's great because they're an awesome band. So where are the biggest markets then for active rock stations? Because I know, you know, New York has had a notorious uh, issue with Alternative and with uh, AAA and you know, well, you know sort of history there. So how does that work for you then? Well, in Philadelphia, you got WMMR, mm-hmm. which I'm born and raised in Philly. Mm-hmm. I grew up listening to MMR. I guess in, it doesn't exist in today's generation, but in my generation, you know, radio is part of your identity. You know, your favorite radio station was like a badge of honor. It was a it was a club you were in. You listened to it all the time. I would record hours of radio on my cassette, on my boombox, so that I could listen back to it and forward to the songs that I liked. Same here. Right? I, I even lost my virginity listening to MMR. <laughs> you know? And I remember who the DJ was. And then 
when I went to college, I went and interned for MMR and then got like a minimum wage paying job there for six years while I did the six year college plan. You know, so (laughs) it means a lot. And that radio station is still huge in the market. You have uh, Riff in Detroit, which have massive ratings number numbers, uh, you know, kicking ass in that market always had KISW in Seattle is really big. Mm -hmm. You got KBPI in Denver. IYY in Baltimore, AAF in Baltimore was, I mean, in Boston was a historic station and that just got shut down this year, uh, which is, uh, which is sad. Uh, but you, what you're also seeing is alternative stations. A lot of the uh, radio companies out there said, oh, you know, we're going to make alternative really, really poppy uh, and be this like pop alternative. Uh, in fact, uh, I know some radio companies refuse to call uh, alternative alt-rock. They want to call it alt-pop. Huh. That's how much they hate the word rock. Wow. But in many of these markets, the idea of doing the pop alternative and not being alt-rock actually proved to be uh, not working. Hmm. So you look at stage, uh, the alternative station that iHeart has in... Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and now they have become rock leaning. The alternative mm-hmm. station in Charlotte, North Carolina, they are now rock leaning. And Cumulus, I have to hand it to them, does a great job of making a blend of their rock stations to be rock with some alternative and do doing rock in a way that no one else is doing. But I also think iHeart is catching on to that. Because you can't survive as a rock format by just playing all the rock hits from the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. Because mm-hmm. a lot of those songs don't age well with time. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's all this great new product coming out from new bands and heritage bands. And even the heritage bands, the reason why Godsmack was so successful with four number ones was because they made an album that, was, that had really big hooks and, and melodies. And that was unlike most of the Godsmack records. So I got to hand it to Godsmack and Sully Erna for acknowledging that music trends have changed and creating more mainstream, uh, more cue-friendly, more hooky music. And that was, uh, it proved for a great comeback. Yeah, and we've talked about that a little bit on in past episodes where AAA had an aversion even to Coldplay. You know, when they first emerged, it was like, oh, that's a discordant c- guitar. We can't play that. It's too hard. And now it's it's become an indie rock kind of breaking new bands format in some ways, like it probably should have always been. But now the aversion is to like the EDM kind of bleeps and bloops. And you have a band like, you know, we talked last week uh, with the Atlantic folks about Absofacto breaking on TikTok. Like it was a record that was worked like two years ago to radio. Radio didn't care. Then it breaks on TikTok last year. And now it becomes the number one hit yeah. alternative. So <laughs> radio, well, that's, that's the one thing I, a funny thing. Yeah, that's the one thing I hate about commercial radio right now <laughs> is that it's all about the science. You know, it's all about the streams. It's all about the data. And and then on top of that, it's either to this or it's to that, or they're trying to pigeonhole everything and they're trying to overdefine anything. You know, we can't lose sight that music is an art form. And we can't lose sight that you can't describe music 
in just words, because honestly, music is emotion. And honestly, some of the biggest hits never can be put into a box. The biggest hits and the best songs can't be defined by narrow parameters. But yet music programmers continue, radio programmers continue to try to like define the specific sound and the specific subgenre and all the different bands that the song sounds like. You know what? Shut the fuck up. At the end of the day, is it a great song or is it not a great fucking song? And if it's a great song, give it a shot. Don't be too worried about the streams. Because guess what? The songs that have the most streams are the ones that are being streamed mostly by 14-year-old girls that are listening to the same song a thousand times in a week. And these people are not listening to your radio station. So stop with all the data and all the analytics as the defining point of why you should play a song. <laughs> you know, get back to it because back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even in the 90s, you didn't have all these tools and these data points and all this crap. And yet, you know, the music industry and radio did just fine by playing off their gut, yep. saying, that's a great song, let's play it with no other you know, reason to play it other than that. And it served us well as, as, as a public and as a radio industry and as a record industry. And right now we are drowning and choking ourselves in fucking data. <laughs> Too much data. <laughs> Big data, right? Is the <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> There's a band. It kills it. me, man. <laughs> We're talking with Nick Attaway. Some great insights here on radio-friendly unit shifters. We'll get into the uh, second segment of the program here in just a moment. And uh, we'll talk some Blink-182. We've got, uh, I got to take you back to the New Radicals era. There's a great story behind that band and that, uh, that the main guy there, Greg. And uh, maybe Butch Walker, too. I remember talking with Butch, about Butch Walker with you many years ago. So we'll, <laughs> we'll try to go into the memory banks and uh, see what we can come up with next here on the program. I'm not telling you the Butch Walker story. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, we're back on the Radio Friendly Unit Shifters podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host. We're joined by Nick Attaway this week. He's now with BMG. He, uh, who did you actually start with in the industry then? Because you talked about MMR being so important as a kid. Was that how you kind of knew that you were going to do something in the, the yeah, radio? Yeah, I wanted to go to the industry? music. Yeah, I was going to college in Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania. I wanted to get into the music industry. So I was bartending at rock clubs. I interned for the concert promoter. I interned for the radio station that turned into a gig. I interned for Epic Records. And then I got like a, a paid um, internship with MCA. Uh, and all those times were great, you know, to get an advanced copy of the Rage Against the Machine debut album and hear it before anyone else and knowing and feeling in your bones that it was going to be huge. That was such a, a great feeling, you know. And, uh, and I think that's like part of the drug that just, totally fueled me. I remember being a college rep for MCA and they would give us all these like, you know, baby bands that they were working. And I remember getting Sublime Sublime and that was coming right after 40 Ounces of Freedom. So they had, MCA had bought Skunk Records that Sublime was on. Then they were like reissuing 40 Ounces of Freedom and they were going to come out with that album Sublime that had what I got and all that. And I listened to that album 
even before it came out, I was like, oh my God, this is a smash. This is going to be huge. And I remember calling up the guy who was in charge of us uh, out in LA. And I said, the Sublime Record's amazing. This is going to be huge. This is going to sell millions of copies. And he goes, no, it's not Nick. It's not going to do anything. And you know, this is why I'm a vice president and you're an intern. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and now what's he doing? And you're vice yeah. president, right? <laughs> but you know, the, the industry is littered with stories of songs becoming hits that happened by accident, that no one at the company believed in at the time. We had bought Blink-182's label, Cargo, and MCA had bought that to kind of be uh, inroads to independent retail. And Blink-182 was on there. And the only thing, the first thing they had put out was Cheshire Cat. And I got the advanced album for Dude Ranch. And I was like, oh my God, this is uh, an amazing album. They kind of gave it to me and said, hey, you know, tell me if you want to take this to college radio. Because at the time I was the college radio rep. Yeah. And I was just like, um, I was like, okay. And I listened to it. I'm like, wow, this is really good. And then I called all the radio stations and college radio. And this was before the internet blew up. This was before Napster. But I called up all these college stations around the country and they all heard a Blink and they all loved Blink. And the buzz was great. And I said, I think this is going to be a big deal. And then um, the album came out. And I think it sold like 18,000 copies in its first week, which in today's terms would be amazing. But back then, it was like nothing. Right. You know, we had records coming out every month selling and going platinum in its first week, it felt like. But um, it was doing really, really well. I remember the head of Alternative did not want to take it to Alternative, but her number two did. And we went to the head of the department who looked at me and goes, do you really think this could be something? I said, yeah. And he turned to the alternative number two at the time. And she was like, yeah, I really want to work it. So he was like, okay, well, you know what? Why don't you just start working in California on the coast, see where we can go from there. And, you know, she was able to get 91X in San Diego and then KBZT in San Diego and then Fresno. And, and then all of a sudden K-Rock. And back then K-Rock was all powerful. And if K-Rock added a record in the 90s, it was guaranteed to be top 10. And uh, so that was a case where it just happened by accident. So Blink, you, you Blink go was, way back with them. I mean, Yeah, Blink was just kids. I remember my boss called me in his office. I was a college marketing rep. And I had a $40,000 a year salary and a $50,000 expense budget. And I was very frugal with my expense account because <laughs> I wanted to save the company money. And my boss said, Nick, what are you doing? You got to spend the money. Why aren't you spending your expense account? Uh-huh. And I was like, well, I'm just trying to save the company money. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. If you don't spend your whole expense account, they'll cut it next year. If you want to make sure you have you know, the same expense account, you got to spend what you got. <laughs> So like a week later, I'm in Vegas with Blink-182 and they were playing a club, you know, just in front of like 200 people. Right. And, you know, this was in 1996. Wow. And, uh, and then after the show, I turn to the guys and I'm with the music director of KNLV, the college radio station, and the two editors of Gavin yeah, uh, yeah. magazine that were doing covering college. And I uh, was with them and I was with uh, the band and I said... 
guys, what do you want to do after the show? You know? And uh, they were like, I don't know. What do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you want to do? Like, I don't know. What do you want to do? And I'm like, uh, you want to take a helicopter ride around Vegas? Figuring that was a good way to put a den in the good old <laughs> expense account. And they looked at me and they said, sure. And then we get to the airfield after the, the you know concert. I'll never forget their original drummer who you know, was replaced by Travis on the next album. He didn't want to go on the helicopter unless he could bring his girlfriend. Oh. Who I got the vibe was like a Yoko Ono type. But I was like, dude, there's no room for your girlfriend. Sorry. He goes, well, then I'm not going. I'm like, so be it. You're just the fucking drummer. <laughs> I wouldn't say that now because Travis Barker is like, you know, is the signature sound of right. Blink. He's incredible. Uh, but anyway, you know, we got up in that helicopter and we're going around Vegas and we're hovering above the Luxor Hotel Casino with that, you know, spotlight shining straight up at the helicopter. And Mark Hoppus leaned over and looked at me and he goes, Nick, do you think we're going to be big? And I looked at him dead in his eyes and I said, dude, you're going to be fucking huge. And the rest is history. <laughs> and then soon after, I left MCA Records. And then 20 years later, I joined BMG. We signed Blink. And then Tom DeLong quits. Right. And then the band and management says, we're so sorry. I guess we're not going to put out a Blink record. And we're like, of course we are. We don't need Tom. It's fine. Find someone else. And that's how it rolled. And then we came out with California. And I heard the record California. And I was like, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to get like two number ones off of this album. And they never had two number ones off of an album. With all the hits they had, Man. they never had two number ones because they were always being cock-blocked by Foo Fighters, Green Day, Chili Peppers. <laughs> right. You know, they had... They were right up there. But they were <laughs> yeah, they would have like one number one and another one number two because of <laughs> Chili Peppers, right? But uh, when I first saw Mark Hoppus after 20 plus years, right? I was like, hey, man, you probably don't remember me, but, you know, we took a helicopter ride, you know, in Vegas when I worked at MCA back in 96. And he just looked at me and goes, oh, my God, I remember that. <laughs> and then, of, like, and you think about it, of course, who forgets their first helicopter ride? Right. Over Vegas in the middle of the night, right? <laughs> yeah. I know. That's awesome. But the thing is, is that no one of the companies signed them. They were adopted. No one thought they were going to be huge. And it just stumbled across to like be a big hit. Just like Semisonic. You know, we had Semisonic there at that time. And at that time, the album was submitted. And the president of the label and the vice president of the label told the manager that there was no hit on the album, which had closing time on it. And told the manager, go back, have the band go back in the studio and make a Third Eye Blind song. <laughs> Well, that, that's a pretty common theme, right? In terms of a label saying to an artist, like, we don't really hear a hit on this album. We'll go back in, you know, record a hit. Like Sarah Bareilles, I think that was the story behind Love Song. Where yeah. she, she had a whole album ready to go. She was all happy with it. And they said, well, we need one more. So then she was like... Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's not like that. As, you know, today I work at BMG and we just work whatever the artist gives us. There's no way in our process. And that can also work against you because may also be good to be able to say, well, you know what, maybe try to fine tune it and do mm -hmm. this. And, you know, there's a nice balance. And now I think there's not enough input maybe on the label side. But back then, 
there was too much input mm-hmm. and a lot of idiotic, you know, thought processes. And the manager said, you know, no, I think closing time is a hit. And your head of promotion, Nancy Levin, who's my boss, best boss I ever had, said, uh, no, closing time's a smash. They said, no, there's no hit on this record. Go back in the studio, make a third eye blind record. So my boss, Nancy Levin, she went into the president's office, took the CD of closing time off his desk, left the building, drove to K-Rock, played it for the program director, Kevin Weatherly. He was like, that's a hit, and I'm adding it. Wow, on the spot. She took this on the spot, (laughs) came back, walked into the office of the president of MCA and said, K-Rock is adding closing time on Tuesday. It's the next single. And walked out. (laughs) Is that why Leonard Skinner has a song called MCA? (laughs) Oh, shit, man. (laughs) That is wild. Well, there was a there was a radio edit on that, as I recall, uh, because the album version was a little like four and a half minutes, maybe or something. They kind of chopped out a piece of it, and that, um, or they did a radio remix of some kind that I remember. Um, and years later, I think it became kind of an internet sensation where Dan Wilson explained the it's not really about closing time at a bar. No, not <laughs> did at you all. Know that at the time that it was about yes. <laughs> yes. It's so, about the birth of his child, right? Yes. Every new beginning needs is every every new beginning is the end of I don't know. Yeah, you listen to the lyrics, it makes total sense. And Dan Wilson is a freaking genius. Oh like my he, gosh. He yeah. went to Harvard and he was an art major. And I remember taking him on a promo tour and we're in Philadelphia and he's calling out all the statues and what they were and what they meant. And I grew up in Philly. I'm like, what the fuck? Who are you? Where did you come from? Goddamn, some sort of like genius alien. Yeah, he's gone on to you know write for Dixie Chicks and Adele and, and yeah. everybody under the sun at this point, right? Totally. So how does that work in your world then when you have an artist like that uh, that is willing to maybe do, do you have to kind of finagle them a little bit to work with other artists or is that sort of uh, up to them that like, okay, yeah, maybe I can work with this person or that person. And do you facilitate any of those kind of collaborations? Yeah, I did like very recently. So the producer, Eric Ron did the Godsmack album and uh, you know, he kind of like helped with the co-writing as a lot of producers do, you know, going back to, um, you know, with the Beatles. So producers are very important. And Eric Ron was able to kind of like unlock the magic that to make the new Godsmack album that had all those hits. And we got the new uh, Bush album. And I was like, you know, this is a fine album. There's like some good songs on here, but I feel like we're lacking like the big single, you know, the, the commercial to sell the art, as I'd like to say. And, you know... Uh, Bush hasn't had a top 10 record in in a, a decade. So, you know, we need a, a, a really great radio song. I said, how about work with Eric Ron, mm. who worked with Godsmack? And at first, you know, management was like a little bit against that. They're like, you know what? No, we'll have, you know, we'll have Gavin Rosdale go in and and uh, work with the same guy that he worked with on the album. I'm like, that makes no sense. <laughs> Like, you know, have him go back in with the same guy who he did the last 10 songs with. 
in hopes of coming out with a song that's better for radio than any other songs? I, I don't know. Right. I mean, mix it up. Have new chemistry. Right. Have a, a, a fresh new relationship interjected and see what happens. Yeah, a new set of ears. Yeah. And uh, he did. And they went in there and they did like a couple of new songs. And the song Flowers on a Grave was one of those songs that came out of one of those sessions. And they recorded it. And uh, we just went top 10 last week, this past week, at Rock Radio. And it's, like I said, it's been like the most successful record at Active Rock Radio in many years. So, you know, sometimes it's good to listen to the, the record label guy or the radio guy. Right. Not always. Sometimes we're full of shit, but, you know. <laughs> well, tell the story, too, about uh, Greg Alexander from uh, New Radicals, because that was one of your early successes, right? Working yeah, you know, New Radicals, the song You Get What You Give. A lot of people say, oh, you know, he's just a one-hit wonder. But he was a one-hit wonder by choice. Greg Alexander, who is the New Radicals, is a genius. And he has gone on to have an amazing career as a producer and highly sought after and very successful. And um, at the very beginning when we signed him, I'll never forget when we signed him, it was during the Christmas you know, holiday meetings of the company. And the A&R guy who signed him was so happy that we signed him. And we heard the album and every song on the album was great. And uh, we took you, uh, you Get What You Give to radio. And it went like, I believe it went number one at Alternative. It was number one at AAA for eight weeks. And it went top 10 at Hot AC. And, uh, and it was a smash. And when uh, it was time to do the second single... Uh, the record label went to him and said, okay, well, you need a tour now. You know, you need to get a band together and you need a tour in support of the second single. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean you don't want to do it? <laughs> of course you have to tour. He goes, no, no, I, I don't have to tour. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you know, we're telling you, you have to tour. You signed a three record deal with right, us right and we're telling you you have to tour and he's like i did not sign a three record label deal with you the new radicals signed a three album deal with you evidently he signed his contract as new radicals and not as greg alexander and there is no one else in the band of new radicals because he performed all the instruments on the album he produced the album himself and the best part is is that when he delivered the album to MCA, he had no debt because he played all the instruments, he wrote all the songs, he recorded and produced and mastered the whole album himself. And when we signed him, he got a million dollar advance. That was, those with were the zero days, right? debt. So he, <laughs> upon signing, he became a millionaire. And then after you get what you give, it was a huge hit. We're like, you have to tour. And he was like, no, I'm not going to tour. Uh, he did, uh, did concede and do some shows, however. And uh, I remember he did a radio show for the AAA station in Detroit, the River CIDR. And I think he wanted to prove a point that he did not want to tour and do shows because we did a radio station Christmas show that had parents and their kids there. Oh, no. Very family-oriented. <laughs> and one of the people in his band was Daniel Brisbois, who had a record come out years before on Epic. She was also the young girl on All in the Family, and she also played an orphan on Broadway as Annie. And uh, 
very talented young woman. She was in the band. <laughs> but during the show, while I'm sitting in the audience with the program director, <laughs> he demands that all the lights get turned off in the room, that it's total darkness. Yeah. And they wouldn't do it at first. And he wouldn't stop demanding that the lights get turned off. So they finally turned off all the lights. Yeah. And they start going into this jam on stage. And he's like just rambling all these nonsensical words in the microphone. And Daniel Brisbois laid down on the stage and started feigning masturbation over her jeans while laying down on the ground while he shined a flashlight over her crotch. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> You know, and this was kind of like his way of like saying, you want me to tour? Fine, I'll tour. You want me to do shows? Fine, I'll do shows. And uh, then he said, you know what? I'm done. And he like, you know, back in those days, bands didn't just walk away and leave. They were dropped, you know, by labels. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to leave. And again, it was like, you got a three record label deal with us. I'm like, no, the New Radicals do. And I'm the New Radicals, and I don't care. They never have to put out anything again. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just a one-album deal, wasn't it? Was it was a one-album deal, but wow. it was a one-album deal that was all done by his own design. It wasn't like he put out an album with one good song, and it was a success, and everything else he put out sucked, and he struggled for years. No, he put out an amazing album that was a great from beginning to end. It was a masterpiece <laughs> with a hit song. He didn't want to, He didn't care about having another hit, and he didn't care about putting out another album. He went on Man. to be a, success, a successful producer. That is wild. Well, um, so many times you hear the story of the artist who maybe gets a lot of things charged to their... Uh, expenses that maybe they didn't realize or you know videos get made and then all of those costs kind of come back to the to the artist but it sounds like he played the system pretty yeah. well in his favor I, I had to hand it to him because you know one of the reasons why I don't work for a major label anymore is because I saw all the instances of how bands were getting ripped off the big bands the baby bands everything in between I'm not saying that every company did it I'm not saying that it still happens to this day all I can tell you is that at the places that I worked, at the times that I worked, I saw things that, let's just say, I, d- I don't think they were illegal. I just don't think they were fair. Yeah. And I don't feel, and I didn't feel comfortable working under those conditions. And that's where, you know, I, I'll never say that I'm never going to work for a major label again, because who knows? Maybe I'll lose my job. I'll be unemployed for months and a major label offers me a ton of money. Yeah, I'll take it. But I've made a really conscious effort not to work for a major label, and I haven't done so since, you know, like 2003. We referenced the Nickelback song earlier. They've done a new version of Charlie Daniels' bands, uh, When the Devil Went Down to Georgia, which I can't help but hear the lyrics in a totally different... Now that Georgia's having so many issues with with the virus and and all these other things going on in the world, (laughs) it's a bit of a different song to me, personally. But they do a pretty killer version of it. I mean, they do. 2020 has been such a weird year. We've had Corn and Nickelback both cover When the Devil Went Down to Georgia. Who would have ever thought that would even happen? 
you know, let alone they, they both pulled it off. So how did that all come together? Did you have any involvement in that? And uh, what's been the response so far? Because it just premiered well, like literally all, days like, ago, right? You know, I mean, we had their last album on B&G, but mm-hmm. it was a one album deal. So technically they're no longer on the, uh, on the label. That may change. And BMG and myself, we have nothing to do with this cover. When it came out, I listened to it and I was like, you know what? That isn't shitty. It's actually kind of cool and fun. You You've know? got some guest uh, guitarist Dude, ripping, that guy ripping on that. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing guitar instead of violin. I mean, right? it, was like, it was like, you know, it Fiddle. was like Eddie Van Halen, you know, a la VH2. You know, I'm like, who is this guy? He's crushing it. But I'm telling you, man, Chad Kroger is like the happiest motherfucker on earth, man. He has made bazillions of dollars. He doesn't give a shit that everyone hates him. He gets the joke. He understands it. The whole band does. You know, when I started working Nickelback on the last album, when I first met the band, they apologized to me that I had to work their album. (laughs) You know, first of all, that's pretty amazing. Second of all... It's because they're Canadian. Americans yeah, would never true. do that. That's true. You know, Canadians are always super nice and apologetic. They're like, Nick, you know, we're really sorry. You got to work our record. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, we know, you know, we're Nickelback and we know that can't be easy. And I'm like, you know what, dude? You guys have sold like 100 million albums, for God's sake. You got nothing to apologize for. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, between, yeah, all the hits, all the success, you know, the sold-out shows all over the world, and, you know, being married to Avril Lavigne there for a while. I mean, Chad Kroger, I'd say, like, he won the, yeah. <laughs> the lottery of life, right? To give you an idea how nice fucking Canadians are, like, uh, Avril Lavigne is on our label, too, and uh, the president of our label stopped by the studio to say hi to Avril Lavigne, and he knocked on the studio door, and Chad Kroger answered it. Looked at him and said, you didn't expect to see me, did you? <laughs> you know, so it's like him and Avril are still friends. That's awesome. But then meanwhile, I was hanging out with Chad Kroger and he's showing pictures of his house that he had to sell in the divorce. And it was heartbreaking for uh. him. And I had never seen anything like this. Only in fucking Canada, dude. The guy builds this mansion, right? But you know what he built first? A professional ice hockey rink with several rows of professional ice hockey rink seats <laughs> with like, I don't know, the, the hockey version of dugouts, like what you would see in the NHL. And then he built a mansion on top of it. <laughs> and he's like showing me pictures of it, just like totally lamenting of like, you know, divorce sucks because I had to sell this. <laughs> Well, what else? So how closely do you work with the artists? Because sometimes I feel like the the poor label people that have to do kind of the grunt work of, of reaching out to radio stations around the country and trying to get these good songs on the air. You don't necessarily get to see or interact with the artists all that much, but it sounds like you you kind of do on some level. So maybe Glorious Sons, talk about them a little bit. And- well, that, that's the thing, you know, you remember that movie... Almost famous. Yeah. Remember the advice that kid got? He's like, don't become friends with the band. Yeah. Well, that's like always the advice that I give me. Don't get too close. Don't become friends. And as a radio promotion guy, you know, I really want to adhere to that because you know what? Nine out of 10 records fail. And when a record fails, 
guess whose fault it is? Mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're going to look at you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you failed the radio. You, you ruined it. You ruined our career. You know, it's like, it's like a record fails. It's my fault. And, uh, and even if a, a record is successful, the idea of success is very subjective. Like we could be top 20 and I'm like, you know what, for this band and this song at this time, top 20 is a massive accomplishment. And the band and the manager could be like, oh my God, what a disaster. Yeah. You know, or you can have like a number one song and everyone loves you and everything's great. And the next song's a total failure and they all hate you again. Right. So I never, ever, ever try to get close to uh, the bands that I work with. And sometimes it's impossible uh, as in the result with the Glorious Sons, you know, they're one of my top five bands of all favorite bands of all time. Uh, I consider each guy in the band a good friend of mine. I mean, I I think of like the crew members of like good friends of mine. <laughs> you know, the management team yeah. are good friends of mine. They're like family in a way. I mean, in fact, when they had a day off on the road, you know, the band came and they all slept here at the house. And <laughs> my wife served dinner for 12 you know we had a turkey and we had a side of salmon and you know and 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 a bunch of sides and then we sat around the fire pit and you know drank so much whiskey that night that when my son came down and looked at the recycling bag he thought like oh my god what did they do last <laughs> night and then you get really really close and then if you know at some point down the road whether it's the first, second, or third single, you know, you, you hit a wall and something fails and and uh, and it crushes you. But with the Glorious Sons, you know what? I had two number one hits, the uh, second single from the second album, Closer to the Sky, you know, didn't even go top 10. It should have. You're always going to end up in heartbreak at some point. And that's why I don't try to get too close to my bands, you know. Well, and they've been a band that's that Canadian American divide again, where they they were playing pretty big venues, right, in Canada, and now and, and they well, kind of had huge. to start from scratch in America, well, but they have built up, yeah, they built been it up with a great live show. Yeah, I mean they're huge rock stars in Canada. You know, they just won their second Juno for rock album of the year. Yeah. Uh, you know, when they play Toronto, they sell out a twenty thousand cap arena. Yeah. I went to go see an outdoor show of them in their hometown of Kingston last summer uh, in front of like 20,000 people. It was like a, they, they could have sold more tickets, but they wanted everyone to be able to have a good view. They're huge rock stars there and they make a lot of money. And the reason why you don't see a lot of rock bands from Canada being successful in the U.S. is because that when you come to the U.S., you start from zero. You know, you could be a huge rock star in Canada, but then all of a sudden be a no one here. So the amount of time and money to invest uh, as a Canadian band in the U.S. is too much for most bands, you know. But early on in their career, their manager noticed something. They said, listen, guys, you can be the biggest rock band in Canada. And if that's what you want, awesome. Kudos. I'll make sure that you stay the number one biggest rock band in Canada. But if you really want to be big, you need to be big in the States. But that means no longer being a tour bus. You're going to have like... 11 people crammed into a small little, you know, half RV, <laughs> uh, you know, with people sleeping on the floor. You're not going to have the full rider and the, you know, fancy food backstage. You're not going to be making any money. You're going to have to pay 
and subsidize your own tour. You're going to have to pay a lot of money to go on tour in the U.S. And you're going to have to do it for a very long time to have any sort of return. And they said, so if you're in, you're in, and I will help you get there. And if you're not, no big deal. We'll keep you as the biggest rock band in Canada, so which is like the 16th largest market in the world. And uh, whereas the U.S. is the number one largest market in the world. And everyone in the band said yes, except for the lead guitarist who said, I'm out. Wow. So they got a brand new guitarist, Chris Coster, who I think is way better anyway. And uh, yeah, they toured the U.S. for several years, four years, solid, maybe wow. even more. And they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own money. Jeez to develop themselves in the U.S. This money was not fronted by management. It was not fronted by a record label. It was fronted by themselves. Wow. And they would go on tour and play in front of like three people a night. Yeah. And then the next time it would be like 30 people and then 50 people. And then when I started working with them with SOS, they went from like 30 people to like 250 to 300 people. Hmm. And, uh, and then it was going from 500 to 1,000 cap rooms. And then on this last tour, you know, there were some rooms they were selling over 2,000 tickets in the U.S. And so that they, um, and this was all because of radio. So for people who say that radio dead are like morons, because I watched firsthand how a big hit on the radio could turn a band into 100 tickets a night to 500 to 1,500 tickets a night, depending where they were geographically. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And you've got the, uh, the record up here. Uh, as evidence for uh, number one, yeah, SOS. Yep, and we went number one with Panic Attack uh, as well, which is another great thing. But to me, they are, you know, I think they're, how often do you listen to an album where every single song on the album is incredible and is amazing? Mm -hmm. That is such a rare find. Yeah. You know, and to me, Brett Emmons, the lead singer who writes all the songs, is one of the greatest songwriters that I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. He's only 27. The band has several albums out. Every single song is great. Yeah. Every one. And to be 27 years old, you know, and he's a wild, crazy guy. I just hope he makes it through 27 and it's going to be all smooth yeah. sailing yeah. after that. Nick, uh, we've got so many great stories. Are there any that come to mind, top of mind, uh, that that we haven't explored? Like, I feel like those are the pretty much the greatest out-of-way hits right there. You know, there's a lot of them, but <laughs> a lot of them that I can't repeat for public knowledge. <laughs> well, I still have a job. revisit next year, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, the best thing for you to do is interview people that are, like, retired, because then they won't get fired for all the great stories that I tell. That's right. You know? Oh, and find yourself some tour... Uh, Tour bus drivers. They got the <laughs> best stories. At Bonnaroo, I made sure I talked to every tour bus driver because they got stories that will just blow your mind. Where do you see, you know, even a band like Glorious Sons, are the festivals still a big component or do you kind of, how do you assess the bands that you're working with in terms of, you know, you've got so many different levels of, of success that you personally are, are working with um, at BMG. So... I know this year has been just a crazy kind of almost throw it out <laughs> kind of year, but uh, how do you see the industry sort of moving forward? And I, I know you hate the, what are you listening to now question, but uh, what, what are some things that you're, that are in the pipeline for, for what people should be listening to right now? At the end of the day, bands make all their money off of touring pretty much. Uh, a band has to stream a song 
Well, a song has to stream like a million times for the label to bring in $3,000. Mm. By the time the label takes their cut, publishing takes their cut, management takes their cut, you know, the band is left with hardly anything. But the reality is, is that all those streams and all that airplay and everything is just the, it's an advertisement for the live show. You know, a band like the Glorious Sons, I mean, they can go in and play in front, uh, sell out a room of a thousand people and they're going to make more money that night than they are off the streaming of that entire album for that whole year, maybe even longer. You know, so it, it hurts me that these bands have been grounded because that's the last revenue stream is the live touring and merchandise is really important. But guess what? When do you buy merchandise? You know, you're either buying merchandise when you pre-order the album and how many people pre-order. I actually pre-ordered the Flaming Lips vinyl, by the way, so I could, for the sole purpose of getting that limited edition signed artwork, <laughs> you know, put up on the wall. Uh -huh. um, so people are only buying merch usually either when they're doing a pre-order of the album or when they go to the live show. Yeah. You know? And that's huge. I remember I would go out. And, uh, you know, when I would go out on the road with the Glorious Sons, they'll play in front of a thousand people and they'll sell like $4,000 in merch for that show. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And then those people walk around in public wearing those t-shirts mm -hmm. and that's like advertisement of the, for the band. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's all gone, man. It's, it's really sad. Well, you know, think, hopefully it'll come back soon. Yeah. I think the save our stages uh is the big thing now where they're trying to get congress to maybe help out some of the venues and, and artists and things because yeah we, you don't want everything to come back you know quote unquote back to normal and then we don't have any of these smaller venues to go to because they've all gone out of business so yeah we got to keep them afloat for a while and, did the uh, uk just put a lot of money towards the live music scene i haven't seen that but i would hope so because yeah that's one of their big industries, I think, in terms of the whole country, right? Yeah, well, I mean, when you think about it, you know, the greatest debate ever is, you know, who put out the greatest rock bands, the U.S. or the U.K.? And, um, you know, the U.S., unquestionably, no one's going to deny that the United States created rock and roll. Right. But if you compare, you know, the U.S. to the U.K., I don't know, man. I might have to go with the UK, man. Bowie, yeah. the Beatles, Zeppelin, yeah. you know, the Who. The Kinks. Uh, yeah, the Kinks. <laughs> I mean, it just goes on and on. And then you look at all the, the Britpop, you know, of the 90s that didn't get huge over here because corporate radio was too busy playing Creed. I don't know. I th Personally, I think the UK has beat the US. What do you think? Uh, it's, yeah, very close call. You're right. No, I want to hear your opinion. <laughs> no, I want to know. What do you think? If you I don't had to know, choose, man. who put out, like, at the end of the day, from beginning to end, who put out the greatest number and the greatest quality of rock music? Rock music? Yes, I would say UK. I mean, yeah, Beatles, um, Stones, Bowie. I mean, God, man. I mean, overall, I'd still have to lean towards, you know, Motown, Stax, and, and America for maybe overall, but. Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. Although there are fewer outlets over there, it seems in terms of like BBC doesn't don't they dominate with like BBC one two three four five six? Yes, yeah. kind of it. But. Well, that's what kills me. I hate it when 
The people in the UK are trying to tell me how to do my job in terms of releasing a record uh-huh. because it's like apples and oranges. First of all, if you have a huge monster hit on the radio in the UK, it's going to last eight weeks on the radio. Wow. Right? A huge monster hit in the US here could be 30 weeks on one format and then cross over to another format. At the end of the day, it could be who shit on the radio for one and a half to two years, for God's sake, right? And not only that, but we have like hundreds and hundreds of radio stations that we have to hire huge teams mm-hmm. to spend weeks working on. Right. You know, over there, you know, you get like one guy who can like cover the whole freaking country in a half hour. <laughs> You know, so that and that's the biggest problem, you know, in the now is that because of the Internet, there's no such thing as a U.S. release and a U.K. release. Right. If it's released in the U.K., it's global. If it's released in the U.S., it's global. Yeah. Yet the U.K. has their own way of releasing a record, its own timeline, it's in its own, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, life cycle. Yep. And the U.S. has its own life cycle and time span. So, you know, when the UK is trying to release something in the US and have it coincide with their life cycle, Mm -hmm. it's a freaking disaster. Yeah. Well, I see this Dave Matthews Band VIP uh, pass you've got on your your table here. I I feel like they've been one of those bands that's had a hard time getting any kind of inroads in Europe. At this point, I guess they're, you know, established and everything, but... It was always, it seemed like, a you know, they were huge in America, would always tour every summer in the U.S. and maybe way less in the U.K. Have you had some of those stories where there's a certain band that you've worked with that, man, they're huge in this country or that country, but can't quite break through in America or vice versa? You know, the one thing that was interesting, it's funny that you brought up Dave Matthews' band, that they could never break in Europe because, you know, Jack Johnson... I wouldn't say he's like the same genre as Dave Matthews Band, but definitely the same target audience, Mm -hmm. you know, is massive in Europe. And you wonder, like, why does Dave not become big in Europe, but Jack Johnson? And is that because the record label didn't put their weight behind Dave Matthews Band, but did put their weight behind, Mm -hmm. you know, Jack Johnson? Yeah, I don't know. You know, Blink-182 was never really big in the UK. Hmm. But, uh, you know, I guess, I mean, they were still big, but, you know, not as massive. You know, one of the bands that I actually love that uh, was like one of my favorite bands when I was 13 years old, and now they're on our label, is Iron Maiden. Mm. You know, and I love Iron Maiden, and I love going to Iron Maiden shows. You go to Iron Maiden shows, you talk about like Pearl Jam seeing three generations, you go to an Iron Maiden show, you see like four generations of people. <laughs> and what's crazy about Iron Maiden is that they are massive all over the world. And they are bigger in every country than they are in their home country of the UK or the United States. Wow. So in the US, they'll still sell out arenas in the US. Right. But they will sell out 150,000 cap massive arenas in India and Brazil and Mexico and like it is absolutely insane and the one thing I love about like I'm not a metalhead uh, never been into heavy metal but I love Iron Maiden <laughs> and the one thing that I found out from working with a lot of artists is that 
a lot of the recording artists that I work with, they all love Iron Maiden. <laughs> and they can like, you know, I worked with Mike Doty and he loves Iron Maiden. I'm a huge deadhead. I talk to other deadheads. They love Iron Maiden, <laughs> you know? And it's like, they're like that one hard rock band that people who love all other genres that may not love heavy metal, they'll love Iron Maiden. That is wild. It's something about Eddie, maybe. Yeah. Right. But one thing I do want to tell you a story that we left on the table. Yeah. You know, because, uh, you know, record label people always get, you know, crap all the time or radio promo people don't know anything or whatever. I remember working Mike Doty and, um, you know, formerly of Soul Coughing. I love the album Haughty Melodic and I was yeah. actually able to get the first single to number one at AAA which was a huge, uh, I was very proud of that. And I remember going to the 930 Club in in, uh, in DC. And after the show, I'm hanging out with Mike Doty. And I look at Mike and I said, you know, Mike, my favorite song off the album is White Lexus. And I wanted to ask you, to me, when I try to figure out what that song means, to me, White Lexus is like a, a euphemism for like a death, right? Like the white Lexus represents death. It's like the hearse, but you're going out in style. Right. And you take that white Lexus and you like just go off in the sunset and you're like dying on your own terms. Is that, is that what it's about? You know, because I'm feeling like I'm really smart and I figured it out. And Mike Doty looked at me and he goes, no. It's about my heroin dealer. <laughs> I used to sit by my window and look outside and wait for my heroin dealer to arrive because he drove away Lexus. Lexus. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so then like two weeks later, as he toured across the country, he had an interview session at KXP in Seattle. Oh, no. <laughs> and I emailed everyone at the company. I said, Mike Doty's going on KXP. You got to tune in and listen to this interview. <laughs> and he's doing the interview and uh, the interviewer said when you write a song do you always know after you're finished what the song is really about or do you write a song that you're not even really sure what it's about until later Right. And he goes well it's funny that you asked that because a couple of weeks ago my record rep and my label Nick Attaway <laughs> called me out my name told me that he thought the song White Lexus was about death. And I told him he was wrong and it was about my heroin dealer at the time. And then I'm driving across the country and I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I realized he was right. The song actually was about death. And there you have it. It was like... The meaning of the song was subconscious and I didn't even realize it until later, until someone actually brought it to my attention. <laughs> and honestly, that was like one of the greatest moments of my career. I nice. felt like a fucking genius. All my bosses are listening. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> you know? That, and that sometimes, you know, that's sort of the, you know, from the radio DJ perspective, I always was reluctant to ask like, oh, what's the meaning behind this song? But sometimes those are the best answers that you get because, you know, the artist can always deflect and say, oh, it's up to individual interpretation. But 
sometimes you get those insightful uh, answers. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, that song really is about. Blah, blah, blah. I had no idea until my record guy told me. <laughs> Boom, score. <laughs> oh man, that's great. Well, one final question, Nick. I appreciate all the time today, and uh, you know, having me over to the house and everything. These the bourbon and uh, sweet tea. I no, mean, it's peach just, sweet tea. Peach sweet tea. It's outstanding. Um, With real peach and cane sugar. <laughs> Joe T from uh, from uh, Whole Foods. Whole Foods. All right. Well, what's your favorite bourbon these days? Oh my God. Okay. Hard to. So as pin you, know, you down, know, that the, one of the biggest downfalls of COVID is that I have become, uh, I've been spending way too much money on bourbon to the point where like I'm buying it in cash and sneaking it into the house so I don't get yelled at. But with that being said, <laughs> my favorite bourbons are, that are easily accessible uh-huh. and affordable, Right. Uh, is Henry McKenna 10-year, probably the best bourbon you can get under $30. Okay. Basil Hayden which is the most uh, feminine bourbons you can ever get. And I say that as a real positive because it's smooth and it's sexy and it just feels great. Um, And also uh, Blanton's. I love Blanton's. To me, it's just as good as Pappy Van Winkle. Uh, It's just so good and so rich. And, uh, but I'm, uh, you know, still a big fan of the Buffalo Trace. And still the big fan of um, Eagle Rare. But I had my 50th birthday. And I didn't want to have a birthday party. But when my wife said that my friends would bring me bourbon as a gift, I said, okay. (laughs) And uh, so I got all these new different bourbon bottles. And one that I got was the Metallica bourbon. Oh, yeah. Blackened. How was that? It's actually pretty freaking good. (laughs) But, you know, the funny thing about bourbon is that every bourbon has to come with a mythology. Right. It has to have a story. I think even Dylan has a bourbon now or something. Yeah. Yeah. But you just can't say, hey, here's a bourbon and we put a lot of care in it. It's really good. No, you got to say, you know, old grandpa, you know, Tweedledum, you know, invented this recipe and he did this and he did that or it's the oldest or it's the original recipe or, you know, it's there's always like a myth. Right. And a legend that goes with every single bourbon. It's a little bit like working records. Yeah, kind you of. You kind of have to build a mythology. You got to sell bit. the mythology. Well, you know what the, the whole myth and the storyline <laughs> to Metallica's Blackened is? No. Okay, get this. They get all the bourbon barrels into a big room, and I guess for the for the multiple years that they age them, they blast the vibrations of the Metallica music is vibrating the oak barrels so intensely that it is speeding up the aging process. It's on the little booklet that comes on the bottle. That seems a little a little far-fetched. We appreciate the time, uh, Nick. Well, I thought of one more question, actually. So why did you end up here? Because, I mean, you could, you're globetrotting here, there, and everywhere with all these cool bands and stuff, and uh, this year notwithstanding. But why did you end up kind of hunkering down here and calling uh, Central Virginia home? Well, I was living in Los Angeles. I had, was working there for MCA. Uh, and then I... Uh, Lost that job, went to Arista Records, and then all the top brass got fired. A whole new team came in. 
Uh, I was working rock, alternative, and AAA. They took rock and alternative away from me. I was working just AAA, but I had no AAA records. So I went to the office every day and just did nothing. And uh, they were looking for someone uh, to be a regional in the Carolinas. My father had recently died. My mom was living in Charleston alone. My sister had just moved down there. And um, that job was opening up, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to say, you know what, I'll, I'll take that job in the Carolinas. I'll keep doing national AAA when you do have AAA records, and you only have to pay me 10% more. And I only said that because I was expecting they would give me a 30% pay cut because it costs way less to live in Charleston, South Carolina than L.A. Right. But they gave me the 10% increase. And I also asked to have my contract renewed and fresh, which they did, which shocked me again. <laughs> and You only uh, get what you ask for, kids. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I get the job. And then we moved to Charleston, South Carolina. And the day that we moved there, I looked at my wife and said, all right, we got to start saving money. Because in two years when my contract is up, they're going to blow me out. <laughs> and she goes, well, why do you say that? I said, because if it was up to me, I'd blow myself out in two years because they're paying me way too much money. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, two years later, they blew me out. Yeah. And I was unemployed for a year. And wow. it was when everyone was getting fired in the music business. And I was more suited for a national job for New York or L.A., and this was and, what year? And this was in like uh, 2000. Yeah, I think it was like 2002. And I couldn't get any of the jobs that were opening up because there were enough people unemployed in New York or L.A. that could fill those yeah. without relocating some from someone from South Carolina. <laughs> and uh, and I was so I was unemployed for about a year. And the jobs that I was getting offered were way below what I was making. Uh, but a job opened up with Red Light Management and ATO to be their head of promotion up here in Charlottesville. It was a cool job, and I loved the bands, and I loved the music. And That's kind of when that label was getting going, right? Yeah, and yeah. I was like, yeah, it was like, you know, at the time, Red Light Management and ATO, I mean, they had like, what, 20 employees at the time? Now they've got like... 400 or something. Yeah, yeah. 400 plus. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, you know, I, I took that job, and... And moved up here and, uh, you know, great label, great company. Stayed there for a couple of years, got more money, offered more money to go somewhere else. So I did. And that's the one thing about this music industry is that, you know, if you really want to move up and make more money and grow, you're better off like jumping from company to company. You know, it's not like it was decades ago where if you stayed at the same place for for 20, 30 years, you would, you know, uh, reach levels that you wouldn't reach if you jumped around. Um, but with that said, now I'm at BMG. I love the company. Uh, I love the culture. We're not publicly traded. Everyone's really cool. Uh, I like the bands. I love the fact that I don't have to live in LA or New York. So, you know, right now I'm the happiest that I've ever been. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, great to hear it. And thanks for all the stories and the time and the uh, the beverages today here at the house. Uh, Attaway, home central, <laughs> somewhere in the wilds of central Virginia. And uh, it's Jeff Swepin signing off for another edition of Radio Friendly Unit Shifters. So I guess we should play some Glorious Sons if it's available. Some of these songs, you know, on Anchor, uh, I can get to and some of them I can't. But we'll uh, we'll find something that we oh, can yeah, play. You know. uh, 
related to what we talked about. Maybe new radicals. I don't know. There was a lot of good stuff in here. So th thanks, Nick, for the time. <laughs> yeah, man.